Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 112. I have a wonderful guest today, again, like I always do, um, so nothing's new there, but uh, I have... It's rare that I have known of the work of someone for as long as I have when it comes to Dr. John Demartini. I think I actually remember seeing him first on Oprah back when Oprah was still on and um, uh, as a much younger me. And uh, I remember being intrigued by this idea around goals and values and I mean, you know, John is one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development, and he founded the Demartini Institute, and it's a private research and education organization, now has 72 courses. I get excited that we've got six. <laughs> 72. Blows my mind. Um, and it, he really is so passionate about um, challenging the status quo, challenging people's limited beliefs, limited thinking, and and really helping to expand our view of what's possible based on the inner passions, goals, motivations that we have if we actually dare to start getting creative. And he has some incredible ways for us to do that. So we will chat about that uh, shortly. Actually, something else that I find amazing about him um, which I just can't actually get my head around, even though I absolutely adore traveling, is the fact that he travels 360 days a year to countries all over the world. Uh, he's offered 40 books, published in 29 different languages. He's produced over 60 CDs and DVDs. Uh, and, uh, and it, it, I mean, just amazing, right? So, um, I, yeah, it's a, it's a really special week to have John on the show. And, and I really think that if you're someone who normally listens to this show in 1.25 or 1.5 or double time, do not even attempt to listen to this on any sped up kind of versions because you will want it to be slow enough to take notes. Trust me when I say. So we'll start that chat shortly, but I just want to remind you that Go Low Talks is around the corner. It is our very, very last round of Go Low Talks for the year. And if you have not done this course yet, uh, ask anyone who has on whether it was worth it. They will tell you 100 times yes, and about 95% of them will actually tell you it was life-changing. So yes, we can all read books and make lists and, and do a few things, but there is something about like minds coming together and achieving together and brainstorming together and being each other's brains trust and me being in there with you guys live. I will never stop coaching that course. A lot of people are like, oh, you really want to farm that out. You know, it's time for you to outsource the coaching of that course. It's too labor intensive. It is never too labor intensive to be right up close with the people that I work for, you. And um, when it comes to coaching through a live online program like this, it helps me see right there and then what the challenges are, how we can make things even clearer, even easier, even more helpful for you guys as we continue to produce um, beautiful, helpful courses to help you achieve your low-tox goals. So... Um, I do invite you to jump in October 29. This is it. Uh, and uh, you can always jump in a few days late. That's no problem. We, we keep it open for the first week for any stragglers or people who are like, don't, I meant to sign up for that. This is the last time this year that you can sign up. So I invite you to join me and do that today. Uh, and now I'm just going to jump straight into this incredible conversation with John. Have your notepad and pen ready or maybe listen to it while you're on your walk today and then then go home, listen to it again and make notes. I furiously transcribed some of my favorite juicy bits and have listened to it twice already myself uh, and already started taking action in some of the little nuggets that he shares. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with a living legend. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me again. I am very, very excited to have you here. And uh, while there is, there, gosh, there are so many things I want to ask you, given I've been learning from you for, uh, gosh, since my teenage years, uh, I, I would like to start for anyone who may have been under a rock uh, and not heard of your incredible work to ask you a question about um, your childhood, because a lot of the work that you do 
obviously is to help people get really aligned between their goals, their values, and live, you know, the, the biggest, most um, fulfilling lives that they can. Uh, and you do that across uh, people's personal journeys, uh, in, in workplaces, with government organisations, with all sorts of groups of people. But what fascinates me so much is how this all began for you. I mean, it seemed like life tried to put as many shackles on you as possible as a child and you just kept wanting to bust out of them. And I would love for you to share a little bit about um, your memories of that time and how you believe uh, you started to form some of these such strong, deep beliefs around aligning oneself with values and goals and how powerful that could be for overcoming adversity in our lives. Okay, I could go for a couple, I could go for 40, let's say 64 years on that one. <laughs> um, Give us the 10-minute version. <laughs> yeah, 10-minute version. I definitely had challenges uh, when I was very young. I had speech problems and I had to go to speech pathologist. I definitely had a arm and leg turned in. A kind of a pigeon arm and leg and because of that I had to wear braces as a child and so between going to the doctor for braces and uh, for clumsy you know clunky walking with braces to speech problems had a bit of a challenge in the start that was until really four I had to wear the braces and I think around that same time I, I stopped going to the speech pathologist then I found out in first grade that I had dyslexia and learning problems. And the teacher, after attempting to put me through three different scales of reading, finally gave up and said, look, your son is, I had to wear a dunce cap. Uh, your son is not going to be able to read. He's not going to be able to write. He's not going to be able to communicate very well. He's got speech problems. Uh, I don't think he's going to go very far in life or amount to much. You'd have to, but he likes running now that he got out of his braces. So, my my suggestion is put him in some sort of sport where he can feel like he has, you know, achievement. And I made it through school with the help of the smartest kids that I asked questions to, which led me to learn proper questions in life. I mean, I'm known for my questioning process today. Mm. And um, also because of that, I, I also, I read, I write, I travel, I teach today. All the things I was told I would never be able to do. I think that had a catalyst somewhere back there to assist me in what I'm doing today. Right. And then, then I was a teenager. I, I left school. I left home when I was 13 and then finally left school at 14 and made it out to Cal hitchhiked out to California to go surfing. Cause that's where, that's the sport that I eventually took over. And eventually at 15, I went to Hawaii and I lived on the North shore riding big waves. Uh, Hawaii. And um, we did, you know, I was a surf buff. But then I nearly died when I was 17, almost 18. And as a result of the recovery of that, I, I met a gentleman named Paul Bragg one night. And he spoke for one hour. And that night, uh, I think he was speaking to me, because I really, really got a deep impact from that. And that was the night that I, I thought, well, maybe I could overcome my learning problems. And maybe I could learn how to read and maybe I could learn how to properly speak. Uh, and that was a turning point that that night I saw a vision of me doing what I've been doing today and what I'm doing today. And I've been the last 46 years on a mission to, you know, do what I was in my vision, uh, visualizing doing. And that was to overcome learning problems and learn how to speak and learn how to teach and learn how to read and and uh, learn as much as I can and share as much as I can and do what this gentleman did for me as many people as I can. So that's mm -hmm. been what I've been for 46 years. Well, and, and I, think you're, I think you kicked those goals pretty well. <laughs> um, um, but so many people feel like they are bound by the limiting beliefs that maybe, you know, um, came to them by their, their pasts, like family life, you know, money stories that our parents kind of gently... Um, infiltrate our brains with about lack and never having enough and the people having too much and it being gross and you know there's so many limiting beliefs 
how, you know, you talk a lot about a, a very specific questioning process that you help people through. Is, is it time for us to actually stop when we, when we start to play the victim card? Is it time for us to stop ourselves and say, right, now's the time I need to ask myself some pretty powerful deep questions and figure out what's going on here? Yeah, if you ask yourself, you know, why did this happen to me? You're going to get a different impact. And if you ask, so how is this experience, this event, helping me fulfill what's most meaningful to me? Mm. How is it helping me do something extraordinary? You know, I had a young boy come up to me, young. He's probably 20s, early 20s, but he's young compared to me. I'm 64. So uh, he came up to me and he said, you know, he started rambling, rap. He started running his story, his racket, and, and rambling and rambling and rambling about how he was a victim of this, and his parents did this, and he, would, he was treated this way, and nobody was caring, and da, da, da. And he just ran his story, and I stopped him right in the middle of it. I said, so you didn't have parents? I left you. I said, yeah. And I said, so you're like an orphan? He goes, well, yeah. And I said, uh, I said let's go on the internet real quick. And I found a, a site that had a list of celebrities that were orphans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, one of the greatest minds that ever lived, was an orphan. His father died when he was born, and his mother had to leave him. Tycho Brahe, who was another, uh, you know, astronomer. Bill Clinton was another one. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, there were 700 celebrities that have left their mark in history and legacies that start out that way. And I said to him, I said, so you're in this category. This is a gift. This is a, this is a, a major opportunity for you. And he just looked at me and his whole frame of reference shifted. He says, you mean these all were, were like me? And I said, yeah, they all start out just like you. So that means you're destined to do something amazing. And he never thought about that. He was just running his racket. Yeah, running his racket. That's such a powerful um, distillation of what we're doing when we, when we tell those stories again and again, right? Yeah, I, I, you can be a victim of history. You can be a master of destiny. It's all based on the questions you ask and the decisions you make and the actions you take. Mm. You know, you have control over three things, your perceptions, decisions, and actions. And if you don't shift your perceptions to on the way and they stay in the way, you hold yourself back. Yeah. And if you make decisions to prioritize your life under the highest priority things, you won't grow self-worth and momentum. And if you don't take the action and, and consistently take actions that inspire you. If you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it's going to fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. And the reason why it fills up with those is to frustrate you to get you back onto what is priority, to be authentic. And so what's going on is always on the way, but people have fantasies they compare their life to and expect their life to be matching those fantasies instead of honoring the magnificence of what's there. Yeah. And it actually, something you just said there reminded me of, of one of my favorite things that I've ever heard you say, which is all the events in our lives are on the way, not in the way. Such an important distinction, right? It is. You know, I, I always say anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel. I have the largest collection of gratitudes of anyone I've met on earth. And I do it every day. I've already written your, your uh, interview in there. Just finished it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I document everything I get to do as a metric of all the things I'm blessed to be able to experience day by day. And I, I keep on, uh, you know, there's thousands and thousands of pages of this. And wow. I, I just... When, do, is there a particular time of day that you write your gratitudes or is it just something you whip out, you know, waiting in the, at a cafe or... No, most of the time it's in the evening, but sometimes it's on a flight. Sometimes it's on a, when I'm, I've got a break on a, on my computer and I'm able to get it done, but I do it every day. I don't, I don't go a day without it. I mean, if you look at, if I showed it to you, it's 23 volumes. And if I showed it to you, you would, you would, you'd be going, Whoa, this, this is a serious neurotic guy. <laughs> <laughs> or a genius who has tapped into. I don't, I don't I just, we could go with that. Let me help you reframe. My, John. <laughs> that's fine. Well, neurotic is okay with me too. I own everything. But I, I, I was told, I was born on Thanksgiving Day, and my mom told me when I was four to make sure I counted my blessings every day, because those that are grateful for what they have, they get more to be grateful for. So I guess it's been a life uh, pathway 
but I, I keep records of everything I get to do. Every radio show, every newspaper, every magazine, every interview, every talk, every person I get to meet, everything I get to experience, I get to experience. I mean, supportive or challenging. And just keep an image. It's like a journal. And then I, I learned from a guy who had six PhDs when he was 35. And he, and he was a great mystic. And he says, don't ever go to bed without reviewing your life in a way that there's nothing but thank you. And anything that's not, go back and review it again until you can see the unconscious hidden order that was there that you missed. And so that was a very, that it was given to me at 23. And so I've, I've made it a pretty big habit to, you know, keep records of the things that I'm grateful for and, and the metrics of all the things that I'm having in my goals. But if you're not really metricing your goals, uh, you're not really committed to them. Mm. Let's, okay, let's talk about goals then um, in a bit more depth uh, because one of the things that you always challenge people to do is make sure that your goals match up with your values. Can you unpack that a little bit and, and share the reasoning behind that? Well, not necessarily your values, but your highest value. Oh, okay, right. Because your values can be a whole hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Every individual has a set of priorities, a set of values, a hierarchy of values, things that are most important to least important that they're running their life by. All their perceptions, decisions, and actions are based on it. So they're, they're the foundation upon your behavior and your destiny. Hierarchy of your values dictates your destiny. So whatever is highest on your value, you're spontaneously inspired from within to do. It's an intrinsic value. And as you go down the list of values to lower values, they become progressively more extrinsic, where you require more motivation, incentive, and reminding to do. So in other words, a young boy who loves his video games doesn't need to be reminded of his video games, but he needs to be reminded to do his homework, his chores, and his, clean up his room. So anything that you need to be reminded to do is obviously low on your values. Anything that you spontaneously love doing and you just get up and do that your life demonstrates is spontaneous is obviously meaningful to you. Mm. So if you're not setting goals that are congruent with the highest ones, you're setting yourself up for an automatic feedback of self-defeat and, and of self-depreciation. Because anytime you live by highest values, you appreciate in value. Anytime you live by lower values, you depreciate in value. So it's, that's why it's so important to fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, challenges that inspire you, before life gives you challenges that don't, and lower-priority distractions that don't. So, you know, it's, it's simply doing that. And I've seen thousands of people over the years who immediately begin to do that, and their life changes. Mm. And anytime you're not living by your highest values, and you're not fulfilled because of it, you try to fill full your life by other means. Consumerism is one of them, and eating is another. And a lot of uh, addictive behaviors and impulsive, immediate gratifying behaviors are compensations for unfulfilled highest values. So it's very important to d- discern what truly is a value in your life. What does your life demonstrate you spontaneously do that nobody needs to remind you to do? Mm. And the problem with those people is that they – they subordinate to individual or collective authorities or societies, conventions or traditions and try to fit into, fit in instead of stand out. Instead of being an unborrowed visionary, they're a borrowed visionary and they're trying to be somebody they're not. And being second best at being somebody other than themselves is not as powerful as being first at being you. And so giving yourself permission to be you and to shine instead of shrink and to clarify instead of cloud your mission instead of you're being caught in your vulnerable, you know, addictive passions, uh, you're, you're, you're wiser to be inspired than, than not. And most people live quiet lives of desperation because they're subordinating to so many authorities on the outside and living in their shadows. Mm. So that's really interesting. There's so much we could talk about there because, like, you know, you we we tend to to like we can't not do things for, that others need us to do sometimes like how do we know when we're clouding our own um our own vision of of living our higher selves and um or, or being selfish like you know what i mean like, i don't know if i'm explaining what i'm trying to ask um yeah i do i, I, yeah, I get okay. it Anytime you hear yourself saying, I ought to, I'm supposed to, I should, I ought to, I got to, I have to, I must, I need to, those are called imperatives. 
Mm-hmm. Imperatives are injected values by outer authorities that you subordinate it to. Okay. And they're different than indicatives. Indicatives are things that you state like, I love it. Oh, I do it. I love This is inspiring. Oh, I can't wait to do it. I love it. And when you're doing that, your, your, your heart is in it and you're not fighting yourself. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have responsibility, as some people call it, or duty, as some people call it, instead of being subordinate and feeling, oh, I got to do it. I have to do it. It's wiser to ask, what is this action and how will it help me fulfill what's most meaningful to me? So your vocation becomes your vacation. So you can see that no matter what you're doing, you're doing it not because you have to, but you're doing it because it's helping you get what you want. Yeah. And there's nothing you could be experiencing that can't be turned into an opportunity this way. I've trained thousands of people that have difficulty in school, for instance, or maybe at their job. And I've asked them, how is this class helping them fulfill what's most meaningful to them? And they change, I got to go to school to, I love it. I'm getting what I want now. The same thing at, at work. Nobody goes to work for the sake of a job. They go to work to fulfill what's meaningful to them. If they can't see how the job duties and responsibilities are going to help them do it, they're disengaged or uninspired. And they're going to want to escape. And they're going to want to, you know, immediate gratification. But if, if all of a sudden they ask, how specifically is this job duty helping me fulfill what's most meaningful? It no longer turns from... It's no longer a got to, have to, must. It's an inspiration. I'd love to do it. Sorry. It's a link, whatever you do. Either go and do what you love through delegating or love what you do through linking. This is the secret of momentum building and vitality and inspiration that serves people. Mm -hmm. Love what you do through linking. Can you explain that? Yeah, just take whatever you're doing and link it to whatever is most meaningful to you. Gotcha. So is this the scenario where sometimes because of where we're at right now, we've got to be the janitor, we've got to be the Burger King cashier, we've got two jobs just to keep food on the table, kids' clothes, going to school, and we can reframe that that might not be like your dream job or jobs in this case, um, but what it does help you do is fulfil your dream of being the parent you want to be for your kids. Is that what you're kind of talking about where sometimes... Um, if, if, that if, your highest, if your highest value is being a parent for the kids, yes. Yes. But, but there's nobody that has to do anything. I, 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 I've had people for, God, 40 years try to confront me on this, and I win every time. Yeah, please, people, win. Go for it. People try to tell me, I've got to do this, I have to do this. I said, you've got to, you have to. Well, no, but the consequences if I don't, well, let's take a look at those consequences. Because every decision a person makes is based on what they think will give them the greatest advantage over disadvantage, greatest reward over risk at any moment. So if they don't see a pathway of doing what they love and they never make out a planned pathway to get there and strategically structure a way of doing it and get it to do something that's meaningful, that's inspiring, that also produces an income to delegate with, the money to delegate with, they're trapped. But every job, that anything that you tell me you want to do, I can show you a way of making extremely good money at doing it where you can delegate everything else off your plate so you can accelerate what you want to do. I've yet to see one, one uh, case I haven't been able to build that way. Can well, you share a story of, of a favorite in the past? Yeah, I'll show you a hilarious one. Yeah, go for it. Okay, here's a, here's a really cool one. There's a lady that uh, came to my Breakthrough Experience program many years ago, about 20-something years ago. And uh, she was sitting in the front row, and there's a, we came across on Sunday afternoon a, a series of questions that I asked people. What is it you would absolutely love to do? <clears throat> uh, what are, how, how can you get handsomely and beautifully paid to do it? What are the seven highest priority action steps you can begin doing today that will help that become reality? What obstacles might you run into, and how do you solve them in advance? What worked and what didn't work today? How do you do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And how did whatever I experienced along the way, how did it help me get there? Now, that's seven very powerful questions. And, and I asked this lady that, and we got to the first question, what is it you'd absolutely love to do? And she said, well, I love spending time with my dog. I said, great. How, would, how can you get handsomely and beautifully paid to do it? And she just went blank. She just looked at me. She goes, well, how can I get paid to be with my dog? <laughs> Let's look. There's no, there's no such thing as a thing you can't get paid for. And she just never heard of that idea. Okay. So I said, let's look. And she finally, I said, let's hold yourself accountable to answer the frigging question instead of running the story that it's not a, there's no way. So I said, how could you get handsomely paid to be with your dog? 
in about oh, three or four minutes, she said, well, my dog is very cute. He's a chihuahua. And people like taking pictures. Maybe I could charge for pictures. I said, great. What are some action steps you could do to make that happen? And we came up with seven action steps. Well, that Monday, she went, she lived in New York. She went to Central Park with her dog. And as she walked through the Avenue of the Philosophers, which is a, where there's benches and trees, she comes to the fountain in the boathouse. And um, she's walking around with this beautiful dog. And finally, somebody comes up and says, I'd like to take a picture of your dog. And she says, well, she's never said anything except, sure, before. But this time she said, well, I'm his agent, and that'll be $5. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and so she, she, she laughed at that, and, and the guy said, that's fine. It's worth 5 bucks." And he, he paid 5 bucks. And she walked back with the dog, and she said, you know, you earned your keep today. And um, you, you, you earned your food and your sleep. And uh, that night, she got a creative idea. Because anytime you're doing something that's meaningful, your creativity and your, your innovation comes str- stronger. So she ended up getting this red elastic material, this kind of, uh, I guess you could call it felted material. And she cut a square out, kind of a rectangle, the width of his entire abdomen and, and from his leg, back legs to his front legs, and sewed it into a tube. And it was elastic. And then put him in the tube. Hmm. A little, like a little, uh, I guess you could say pants and shirt combination. Mm-hmm. And then she got some sunglasses and put a strap on the back of it that fit him that tightened up over his head. And then she taught him how to walk up on his feet. And so she spent the next you know, day working on that. And uh, she went down to the next day too. She went down to the place again, this time with a red outfit. And then when she got down to the boat area, the little lake area by the fountain, she then put him up on his hind legs and got sunglasses on. Well, she got three people paying $5 on that day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now she's making $15 and, and he's paying for his thing and, and she's getting even more creative. So then she decides, you know, I'm going to create even more elaborate outfits that are going to grow attention that's going to make people want to buy, you know, a picture. And she got really creative and she started doing themes. So it's like Thanksgiving, she'd get a turkey outfit. If it's Christmas, she'd get, uh, you know, either Jesus or the Pope or something. And if you look at her online, her name is Karen Beal, and she oh, actually. I'm so looking this up. Yep. K a r e n b i e h l. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you look her up, K a r e n b i e h l. So anyway, she starts uh, creating this elaborate stuff, and the dog became um, more noticed, and she ended up getting up to hundred and twenty-five dollars now, in a day. This is not a whole day. This is just a short little walk. And she started making more money. And this guy came up to her one day and just started laughing and saw this whole thing going down. You know, this guy is cleaning up with pictures. He said, you know, I think I could use your, your dog in a commercial. And anyway, he became the mascot because he had, she became the agent with a card and sold a deal for a milk bone dog biscuit. And that got earned her about $2.2 million. Did you see that you find the pictures? Uh, no, I'm, I couldn't find her on Instagram, but I'm now looking her up online. Google, Google. Google, Google. Here we go. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to put it in the show notes, you guys, everyone listening, so that you can. Yeah. Um, okay, so now this, this yeah. girl went on and ended up with three TV shows. Um, they, they got to be two, three, three commercials. I mean, she went on to do amazing things. But what, what the point is that, it doesn't matter what you start with. What matters is, are you going to apply principles that have stood the test of time? Mm-hmm. Because anytime you do something you love to do, there's a way of commercializing it and making a difference in people's lives enough to fill their needs to be paid for it. So I'm a firm believer that uh, I've had, I had a lady that was in um, Quebec City and she was a large, very large woman, way, way up in size. And um, she said that she, I asked her, what do you love doing? You know, what is it you love to do in life? And she said, I love dancing. And I said, uh, okay. And so how can you get handsomely beautifully paid to do it? She goes, I have no idea. And she said, look at my body. Do you think anybody paid me for dancing? She didn't look like the dancer because she was so large, but she loved dancing anyway. Slow dancing, not fancy dancing. And I said, well, how can you get handsomely paid to do it? And within about, oh, five or 10 minutes, we started coming up with creative ideas. I helped her. And we found a way where she could actually take people on tours to meet famous dancers around the world and tours of the cities 
and then meet the famous dancer and go to an actual performance by famous dancers and then greet it and greet them and meet them. And she ended up putting together trips for people from Fred Astaire studios and other studios. Um, and she started making about $60,000 a year traveling the world, taking people on trips to go dancing and meeting famous dancers. And she became, you know, connected to all the dancers she dreamed about meeting and she started traveling and then grew. She grew into a business that way. So I'm a firm believer. It doesn't matter what you love to do. It's a matter of asking, how do I get beautifully and handsomely paid to do it? Even if you have to leverage yourself or commercialize it, package it differently, but it's got to be in a way where it can be of service to people. Mm. So such thing as a, as a, as a person that can't be inspired by something. Yeah. And I, I love that story of the, the, the dog, especially because it's almost like as you told each step of it, it's like she gained agency on it with every step and it just kind of gave her more courage to step into this possibly being a reality. It feels yeah. like you just have to have the courage to start, really. Well, that's the thing. Now, I've had people that swore they couldn't do certain things and I've asked them to do it and I chunked it down into small bites. Because mm. many people see... We tend to hesitate, procrastinate, and frustrate if we don't set goals that are small enough bites to take and build momentum with, you know, by the inch it's a cinch. So some people set up too big a goal, it's a fantasy, they don't get anywhere because it's too big. Mm. And it's not because the goal is too big, it's the action steps to the goal is too big. Right. If you chunk it down into small bites, you can build momentum doing little baby steps to make big dreams. Mm. So I'm a firm believer in setting goals that are congruent with what you value most chunking them down to small enough bites and then pursuing them step by step because, you know, you get closer and closer along the way. I had learning problems as a child. The first thing I had to do is overcome learning. I didn't know how to read. Yeah, so it was wasn't, I'm going to write a New York Times bestseller. That's my goal. No, you no, know, no. I, I, it, yeah. I had my mother, I, I went to a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary and read 30 words a day and memorized them and put them into a sentence and spoke them and spelled them for my mother 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to be able to read and to go to school. So it was a step-by-step -step process. And then I made a commitment to read and I started living in the libraries and reading 18 to 20 hours a day. And then I, and I accumulated a lot of books. So I didn't, it wasn't overnight. It was a slow, methodical, consistent, incremental building of a dream. And the same thing for traveling the world. I, I, I had a goal to go to every country around the world. I've been to 142 countries now. And I, and I just keep methodically checking off another one. I was just in Lebanon and I've got one in Latvia coming up, and then in Moscow coming up. And I just keep methodically working towards my goal of chipping away at the dreams that I have and some people have this immediate gratification and then they give up because it's not happening overnight. But I just consistently work incrementally towards goals and build momentum and eventually they start accelerating. And, you know, like you, as someone who looks at your life traveling around, we might all be thinking, well, he's achieved it. He's done. But is there something that's even further ahead in, in your mind that you are still trying to work towards, attain, chunk things down and, and move closer to? Absolutely. I've got, <laughs> I've got a 4,000 page goal book. <laughs> oh, wow. 4,000 page goal book. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have any shortage goals, but, mm. but, but a lot of them are just incremental additional things that I'm still working on. You know, I haven't been to every country, so I'm working on every country. It's one of the reasons I live on a ship that's, that goes to countries around the world. Mm -hmm. So it increases the odds I can get the goal. And then I, um, you know, I have certain numbers of people I want to reach in radio, television, newspapers, magazines. So I metric it every day. And, uh, you know, everything we do, I, I, I had a goal to be in 50 movies. We're at 37 now. We're still working. And we got two oh, more. Wow. Than so these are goals that I set out to do that, you know, slowly but surely they're happening. Yeah. So, you just stay with something and, and you got goals that are beyond your life. I always say a purpose is beyond your life and the goals are in your life and you keep chipping away at the goals to a grander purpose. And the purpose is something that, you know, is the legacy you leave behind. So that's, if you got something to live for, you don't die for things. Mm, beautiful. And in terms of that purpose, is there anything in particular that you, uh, you advise in helping us 
feel like we're, we're connected to that bigger reason for being here than that's far bigger than us. Cause so often well, if we focus on the first world problems of life and, and me, 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 then it, it becomes quite hard to do big impactful things because we don't realize how big, you know, a, a purpose we could potentially have. Well, the thing is, is, um, you know, an audacious goal is great, but it's got to be chunked down into something practical for yourself on a daily basis to obtain it. You know, every time you're living congruently with your highest values, your space and time horizons continue to expand and you achieve things and you walk your talk and so you give yourself permission to go to the next step. And the step is always a little bigger. And if you just keep doing that and, and discipline yourself to stay focused on the highest priority things, you know, Mary Kay Cos from Mary Kay Cosmetics told me to write down the six or seven highest priority actions every day that can help me fulfill my dream. Mm. And I did that every day. And over a two-year period, I found out what was the highest priorities of the highest priorities. And it, for me, it was research, write, travel, teach. So then I made a commitment to delegate everything else away. But, you know, I haven't driven in 28 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I don't do administrative work. I don't do anything except research, write, travel, teach. And that's what I'm doing today, and that's what I'll do tomorrow. I'm going to Las Vegas tomorrow to speak to a company there. And on Friday, I'm, uh, I'll be in London, and I, you know, I'm speaking there for a while. And then I go to Tokyo, and then off to Africa. I mean, I constantly research, write, travel, teach. Because those are the four things that I find most meaningful, inspiring, and that I love doing most. And they're those things, that we come back to what we were talking about earlier, where you, was it that you just really started to notice a pattern of, I love it. Every time I have to do one of those four things, I love it. No one needs well, this is what I love doing. It's what I love to do. Yeah. That's it. Well, why would you want to go through life and not do what you love every day? Why would you want a vacation and vocation to be split? Mm. Why would you want a Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Fridays and week free? <laughs> why not, why yeah. not get up in the morning and be inspired? Because when you can't wait to get up in the morning and be inspired to bring your service to the world, people can't wait to get it. That's where you build momentum. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, somewhere where people sometimes find it, find it hard to build momentum is um, in the, the crazy amounts of chronic disease we see today. And it's like we've moved from this infectious disease mortality situation of yesteryear and pre-antibiotics to chronic disease mortality where we're kind of dying young and just always have problems and things wrong with us. And of course, you know, a lot of the work we do is to demystify some of the environmental toxin causes, food toxins, um, you know, sedentary lifestyle issues, all those sorts of things. But what I, I, I would love to ask you about, um, because you have spoken about this uh, at length in the past, is the psychology of illness. And, and are we also thinking ourselves sicker? Well, if I can develop this. Yes, uh, When we live congruently in alignment with our highest values, we have the highest degree of forebrain activity. Mm -hmm. The forebrain is involved in inspired vision, strategic planning, executing plans, and self-governance. We're more objective, we're more reasonable, less emotive, and less impulsive and instinctual, which is more animal-like. When we're not living by our highest values, uh, and we're subordinating to the, the expectations of others and trying to live in other people's values, which are self-defeating, we automatically go, because of the unfulfillment, into our amygdala, and we look for immediate gratification. And we're trying to, we go into the amygdala and what it does is avoids pain and seek pleasure, avoid predator, seek prey kind of mentality. And as the Buddhist says, the desire for that which is unattainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So the second we try to get a one-sided world instead of embracing both sides to life, uh, we automatically self-defeat and create symptomatology. The autonomic nervous system, which is the parasympathetic and sympathetic are activated whenever we perceive support and challenge to our highest values. And if we perceive more support than challenge or more challenge than support, we don't see an objective balance. We don't have reason. And we keep pursuing fantasies or trying to avoid nightmares. The amygdala comes online and the autonomic come online and we create symptomatology through epigenetics to create symptoms that, that are feedback mechanisms to try to wake us up to the balance that's there. But we've ignored it because of our, modern medicalization where we've actually think, you know, get rid of symptoms is ill is, is cure and symptoms are bad, but symptoms could be part of the healing process. If you went out and pigged out and you had stomach ache, your stomach is trying to tell you quit pigging out, stupid. You know, it's, it's, it's a feedback, not a bad thing. Mm. And suppressing 
symptoms and not getting the feedback and not understanding how physiology is trying to guide us to live authentically uh, is to miss out on the magnificence of the physiology and the applied physiology that it can provide. So in, in saying that then, could something that people who are experiencing chronic illness now do is take baby steps towards uh, uh, um, doing things that bring them great joy, even if in their current chronic state from physical kind of uh, restrictions at this particular point in time, it, it could be a micro action towards that that just starts to bring them more joy and, and more sense of, of agency and purpose in their lives? Well, I, I distinguish, uh, now this is just a trivial thing, but uh, probably, but uh, I say that there are, are transcendental synchronous feelings which are great grace, truth, inner love, inspiration, enthusiasm, certainty, and presence. Mm -hmm. And then there's the polarized emotional feelings that most people get trapped in, which are the happy, sad, you know, positive, negative, pleasure and pain, you know, elation, depression, fantasy, nightmare, kind of joy, sorrow cycle. And so when you have a, a, a half perception and you're conscious of the positives and unconscious of the negatives, or conscious of the negatives and unconscious of the positives, you have a judgment which splits your full consciousness into a subconscious split and disempowers you and creates symptoms, epigenetic symptoms. But when you're actually embracing both sides of life, the pleasures, the pains, you know, if I went up to you and I said, Alex, you're, you're, you're always kind, never cruel. You're always nice, never mean. Always positive, never negative. Always peaceful, never wrathful. Always considerate, never inconsiderate. Always giving, never taking. You wouldn't be able to say, yeah, that's absolutely true. You, you'd have an, a bullshit meter go off and say, you know, intuitively, that's not exactly it. I'm not always that way. Mm. And if I said to you, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always inconsiderate, never considered, always taking, never giving, always stingy, never generous, always wrathful, never peaceful, always negative, never positive, your bullshit meter would go off again. And you go, no, that's not it either. But if I said to you, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're giving, sometimes you're taking, Sometimes you're considered, sometimes you're inconsiderate. You immediately go, yep, that's true. Mm. So we have a bullshit meter, lets us know that whenever we strive for a one-sided event, the bullshit meter goes off and we have uncertainty. <clears throat> and the second we set sail for an objective goal that's balanced, that's truly congruent with what we value most, we have certainty. And certainty is a powerful driving mechanism towards achievement. So you have to set real objective goals uh, that are transcendental instead of, uh, you might say, immediate gratifying. So that, that, so I don't, I don't pursue happiness. It makes me too sad. I don't pursue uh, one-sided outcomes because I, they're futile. I pursue the embracing of both sides at the same time. And I train people in my breakthrough experience how to do this. And most people have never learned how to do this. And they keep looking for fantasies and keep creating nightmares. So I'm a firm believer in, in accepting and embracing and appreciating both sides. If you're in a relationship, if you expect them to be always kind, never cruel, always nice, never mean, you're going to be angry at them because they're, they're going to betray you. Not because they're betraying you, but because you projected an unrealistic fantasy onto them. And so life is that way. If you set unrealistic expectations, you're going to end up having symptoms to let you know that. So it's setting real goals and real objectives that are really balanced, that are really congruent with what you value most is powerful in healing the body and achieving greatness. Beautiful. So much goodness there. Um, now, you've mentioned the breakthrough experience a few times, um, and I was sad that I was traveling on my book tour recently when you were here um, because I would love to have gone. What can people expect, given you spend your life traveling teaching? Um, there's a high probability there's one coming near someone listening right now quite soon. Uh, what can people expect um, when they attend the Breakthrough Experience? Well, I've done the Breakthrough Experience 1,046 times. Wow. So I'll be doing it in London this week and Tokyo the following week. I'll be in Johannesburg the following week. Um, and I was in Houston this week. And I'm sure, where was I last the week before? I was somewhere else. <laughs> I think I was in, uh, I was in uh, uh, yeah, I was in uh, Beirut. So. I've been doing that program for nearly 30 years. And what it is, is a, I'm dedicated to assisting whoever attends 
in achieving whatever is truly congruently inspiring to them and to map out their plan of action to how to achieve it and to show them how to dissolve any emotional baggage that they've been accumulating that they perceive as racket that can interfere with their goal and how to not subordinate to outer authorities, how to own the traits of the greats so you're not minimizing yourself to anyone. So you're giving yourself permission to be an authentic, unborrowed visionary. I said in the secret movie, the voice, when the voice and the vision on the inside is louder and more profound than all opinions on the outside, you begin to master your life. So the breakthrough experience is about how to master your life. And it's about any of those areas. So I got people from relationship issues to health issues to business issues to wealth issues to intellectual, social issues, spiritual issues. It doesn't matter what they come with. There's a science on how to turn whatever they've been through into an opportunity and to clarify what they want to do and how to get after it. And it's not a rah-rah session. It's not, it's a workshop and it's, and, and I'm going to deliver. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's literally 26 hours in the, on a weekend. Mm. It's a full on experience. Wow. And um, a, a few times I've heard you use the word unborrowed. Is that in reference to um, living your own goals purpose um and life rather than what other people expect of you like that's the societal checklist that kind of can sometimes creep in for us where you kind of wake up at 40 and go hold on i never actually asked for any of this yeah exactly you know anytime you infatuate with somebody they occupy space and time in your mind mm. you tend to inject some of their values into your life and tend to sacrifice what's most important to you to try to fit into what's important to them and whenever you do you create what Freud called the superego injunction, which is an injected value that you have an internal conflict inside yourself about trying to fulfill. Mm. And this repression of yourself and expression of somebody else's values is short-lived and eventually builds resentment until you free yourself of that and get your life back. So most people are running around and they're comparing themselves to other people in their intellect, their money, their business, and they're constantly comparing themselves to others instead of comparing their daily actions to their own dreams. Mm. And so that's what I do in the breakthrough experience. We show how to shatter those subordinations and give themselves permission to go after what's meaningful. Because no one gets up in the morning and dedicates a life to your fulfillment. And anytime you subordinate to somebody else, they're dedicated to their own fulfillment, not yours. Mm. So you have to be able to give yourself permission to say thank you, but no thank you and fulfill what's meaningful, but in a way that serves people that earns the income to delegate lower party things or you're trapped. Yeah. And so then in terms of relationships, you know, we marry people, we want to make it work. Like the reason you say those vows to begin with is you, the idea is you're going to spend the rest of your lives together. Do you have advice for helping couples hold space for each other to, to stay true to their own desires um, and support each other through that? Because that, you know, you talk about infatuation and then borrowing other people's expectations of what, it is to be successful in life and at the expense of your own deep values that that would surely come into play with this resentment that some couples experience over time. Um, well, I'd be very yeah, happy to hear what you have to say on that. Yeah. Well, every human being is, is um, committed and loyal and dedicated to what that fulfills their highest value most. Mm. You know, Nobody's committed to you. There's a lot of fantasies out there, religious fantasies and books out there and so-called relationships. Most of it's crap. What it is is basically promoting fantasies about how you're supposed to be instead of asking a simple question, you know, because the, the way the brain is set up, it's, it's, it's only going to do something if it sees more advantage and disadvantage. The fantasy of altruism is fantasy. It's just not there. The only reason people look like they're altruistic is because they've got secondary gains or they've got shame and guilt in the past they're trying to compensate for. So what, what I, I try to do is I ask people, what is it that the person's highest value is, that your, your, your mate's highest value is? Because that's what they're committed to. Hmm. And if you can't see how what they're dedicated to is serving you, you're going to want to fix them. And people don't want to be fixed. They want to be loved and appreciated for who they are. So the, fi the finest question in relationship dynamics I've seen is how specifically is this what my partner is dedicated to, their highest values, the thing that's most meaningful, most inspiring, most fulfilling to them, how is it helping what's most meaningful, inspiring, and fulfilling in my highest values to me? How is it helping me? And I have people answer that question 30 to 80 times. 
the top three values between each other answered back and forth 30 to 80 times. And when they don't stop until they get tears in their eyes of gratitude to be able to be participating in the fulfillment of this other person's values. Because if you can't see what they're dedicated to is serving you, you're going to want to be self-righteous. They're going to challenge you. You're going to put your project, your values onto them. You're going to be projecting a fantasy of who they're supposed to be. And you're going to undermine the relationship and alienate them until somebody else takes them. Mm. So the key is to find out how whatever they've done is serving you, no matter what it is. And it may be something that is completely complementary opposite to you, which is the purpose of marriages anyway. To yeah. try to find it's a disowned part so you can learn to love a part you haven't been able to love. Yeah, wow. Two people are exactly the same. One's not necessary. The second thing is to do it back so you can see how what you're dedicated to is serving them. And do that 30 to 80 times. That takes about three hours, but that's the fastest way I know to transform relationships. Because when you see more similarities, you're infatuated. When you see more differences, you're resentful. But when you see a balance of similarities and differences, you have love. Oh, well, that's exactly what we need to do as a world right now, it feels like. Well, I've, I've been blessed to participate. I'm, I'm doing a conflict resolution between leaders in Israel and Palestine right now. And that's exactly what we're doing to try to help them learn how to communicate because they're both self-righteously, subjectively biased, projecting values onto each other. Mm. Well, they're very then, lucky to have you, John. That's uh, well, you're the man's the job. Yeah. Then, then at the same time, it's wise to make a list of everything that you resent in your, your mate and ask yourself, okay, so what specific specific trait, action, or inaction is this person displayed or demonstrated that you perceive that you resent most? Okay, and you identify that. Then you ask, where and when do you display and demonstrate that same trait, action, inaction in some form or fashion in the same way to somebody else? And who sees you doing it? And when did you do it? And where did you do it? And it's about owning what you see in others because if you can't own it, you can't relate to them. There's no mirror neuron activation. And so you want to ask yourself, whatever I see in them that I resent, where is it in me? Because the only reason that you're resenting it is because it's reminding you of something you feel ashamed of inside and you're too proud to admit it. And if until you pluck the moat out of your own eye, you won't, and before you pluck it out of theirs, it's not going to go anywhere. So then it's wise to find out how whatever they do serves you. It's never what happens, it's how you perceive it. So you have the power to take whatever they do and turn it into an opportunity and be grateful for it. And when you're grateful for who they are, they turn into who you love. That's the secret. Those two exercises are very powerful relationship builders. Wow. That is, that's beautiful. Um, it kind of makes me want to then ask you a question around children. Um, and at the very start, you were like, what, what do you see your child kind of motivated to do? You don't even need to t convince them they have to do it. And then there's all this other stuff they have to do. And the reality of the school system is, yeah, the homework's kind of got to get done. Like, how do we support our children to keep moving towards what really lights them up? while not ignoring um, some of the things that just need to get done. Uh, it, you know, I, I'm keen to see how... It's, exact, it's exactly the same as I mentioned in the, in the business. It's no different. I've taken yeah. thousands of kids and shown them how to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, we've gone to school and schools all over the place and done this. What you do is you, you get the teacher first to identify their top three values. Yep. Once we identify their top three values by my value determination process, I hope whoever's listening can go on my website, drdmartini.com, and do the complementary value determination process because it will help them in their life set real congruent goals. Awesome. I'll chuck it in the show notes so that everyone can get straight to the link. That'd be great. So what happens is you go through and identify the top values of the teacher, and I do this before the school term begins. Then I take the classes the teacher's going to teach. It can be three to six classes, and I link those classes to those highest values by asking how specifically is teaching this class, this topic, this particular content, helping you as a teacher fulfill what's most important to your life. And I make them answer that for three hours until they're inspired to want to go and teach those classes. And they, don't, they, they can't come up with, I don't know, I can't see it. They have to answer that question and I help them until they're actually inspired with a tear in their eye to be able to teach those classes. Then we go to the very first day of school and we uh, take the kids, because that's usually the day where they don't have much responsibility yet. And we take the classes. First, we determine their values, the top three values of the children. It takes 30 minutes. And then we take the classes that they're, they're about to take, and we link how those classes will help them fulfill what's most meaningful to them. Without judging them, if they love video games, if they love sports, if they love modeling, if they love socializing, doesn't matter what it is. They're not wrong for any 
any value system they have, but I link whatever their classes are to whatever is inspiring to them. Because once they can see that their classes are helping get what they want, they're fully engaged in school. Then what I do is that I take the class teacher and the students, determine all their values again, and then link the values. We do a summary of all the kids' values, and we link it to the teacher, and then we take the teacher's values and link it to the kids. This whole thing, I did this in Alexander Township in South Africa, and it was at a 27% pass rate matric, and it went to 97% one year later by doing this in four sessions. Each session was four hours. So it's 15, 16 hours of work. We transformed from 27 to 97% pass rate in this extremely impoverished uh, township. And that's because we got the kids engaged in their school. Every child wants to learn. They want to learn what's important to them. If they can't see how the classes are taken, they're going to help them get what they want. They're not engaged. They want to escape. They go into the amygdala and they want a quick fix. They want to meet a gratification. They get in trouble. So the key, and they get labeled, attention deficit, defiant disorders, all this crap that gets labeled. And what's happened is these kids love learning, and they just got to show them how those classes help them get what they want, and they'll be engaged. I just spoke to 600 girls and trained them on how to do this the other day at a school, at Jeffy School in Johannesburg. And it's just amazing watching the transformations that occur. So there's no responsibility that you can't link to your values and turn them into inspirations. I so believe that. And I, I, um, when I had my first parent-teacher interview with my son in, um, not the first one, actually, the second one, was uh, when the teacher said, you know, he, he tends to look out the window and, he, and um, he's so, so smart if only he would apply himself. And I feel like this is a phrase that kind of just gets brought out every time there's a smart kid in front of us that, just happens to not like the way the learning is playing out in that classroom. And I remember that being said of me in, in my um, schooling. And so I went about trying to figure out how to make, um, how to help my son see the purpose attached to the learning based on his goals and what he thought he might like to do a little bit later in life. That's it. And you got to find out what his values are now. Yeah. And I and just feel, I feel quietly clever right now that you have literally just said everything that you just said, because I'm like winning at parenting. Because well, I just feel like it's so I mean, important. Like as, if you're going to care, unless there's a bit, well, some kids, to be fair, can just um, be excited by being good on a test score. Like that can actually be a motivating thing for some children. But then for a lot of other children, it's not. And we need to find the inner motivations of all of our kids so that we can help them love the learning. Well, the children automatically love learning. I've never met a child that didn't love learning. They no, just love exactly. learning what's important to them. Yeah, yeah. Such a great, um, uh, I think that's going to be so powerful for parents to now start to kind of go about, okay, so we've got to do the maths. It's got to happen. Let's have a think about the fact that you love video games. Do you want to design one one day? Oh, I could never do that. Well, you could if you got good at this maths. Let's do it together. And this is, you know, like then STEM and coding and all these things we can learn that actually mean you could be a game designer one day if you really wanted to be. And then you, can, you, you, have, you, can't, you can't impose the connections. They have to extract it out of them. Oh, that's interesting. So you can't impose and say, well, here's the link. Here's the link necessarily. If they don't relate to the link, it won't, yeah. nothing happens. Okay. It so has how, to, has how do we encourage the relating to the link? Is there okay. It's, it's asking questions. That? It's asking questions. Mm -hmm. You know, when you sell, every, everybody who's a teacher in school is selling ideas to a student. Okay. When you go and sell a customer, you ask questions. You don't tell them. You ask questions. Yes. And you lead them to the discovery of why buying this will help them. And so that they're, they're, you're, they're buying ideas from you as a teacher. That's a product you're selling. And if you can't establish a need, you can't offer a service. So you first got to establish a need in their dominant buying motive, which is their highest values. If you do, they'll buy what you have to say and they'll retain it. They'll use it. So it's not about telling, oh, this is how you'll do it. It's about actually asking them to discover it. And you can lead them towards it, but it has to be confirmed and discovered within them. That is beautiful. That is so powerful. I just can't wait to get going on this in a in a deeper way with my son because it's um for me it just you know like imagine a world where our kids 
actually just get to feel completely lit up by education instead of it feeling like it does for so many of us as families, this thing that one has to do until you can leave school and start doing what you really want to do. Like there's very few things things you have to do in life. Mm, Yes. This is is a recurring theme for you. I love it. There's there's things that you think you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I mean, I jokingly, I I joke when I'm on stage sometimes. Um, I, I, you know, my wife passed away, as you know, 14 years ago. So I, I, I've dated a girl, a few girls, three girls now, and, and um, over the last 14 years. And, and I told the, the girl, I said, you know, like anything that I'm not able to fulfill with you because of my travels and everything else, I, I, I honor that if you need somebody else to fulfill those, perfectly clear. I delegate it. I figure that whoever else fulfills that is actually working for me. <laughs> They're able to do the things that I'm not willing to do. So I always see it. You know, some people are all bent out of shape about affairs and all that stuff. I don't see it that way. I see it as that, that everybody's trying to fulfill their values. And anything you're not willing to do with your mates and fulfill their, 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 their highest values with your mate, you've got to be willing to delegate. And so I just say, look, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of people out there in your life and experience your life to the fullest. And then what happens is they're more drawn to you because they feel the freedom. And there's a magnetism to somebody that gives them the freedom to be who they would really dream to be. Wow. There's so many incredible. Sorry. I haven't driven in 28 years. Like I said, I, 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 many years ago, I thought, okay, why would I drive? I could be using that time to, to create. I could be writing. I could be reading. I could be doing things that are more meaningful to me. So anytime I'm not doing something that ties to priority, I just delegate it away. Hire yeah. specialists around me to do all those things. Yeah. I actually took a train instead of, um, instead of driving uh, the other day, I could have gotten a rental car to, to, to go from an A to B situation on the book tour. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to sit on the train. I'm going to do some writing. Uh, that's really what I feel like doing. And, um, and I think that's like just one tiny little example of delegating away so that you can stick to your higher value. Yeah. Yeah. I was told when I was in, in uh, business many years ago that I had to do all this stuff, all these responsibilities. And I just found that's all bullshit. I, I, I made a list of everything I did in a day at the time. And then next to it, I wrote down how much does it produce per hour? And I, I, I extrapolated it the best I could. Then next to that, I wrote down how much meaning does it have on a one to 10 scale. And then next to that is how much would it cost to delegate it if I paid somebody every bit of the cost. And then the last one is how much time I spent. And when I finished that, I, I realized I was majoring in minors and minoring in majors. And so I then reprioritized everything. And I slowly but surely delegated everything else off my plate so I could do the thing that was most significant, which again, turned out to be researching, writing, traveling, and teaching for me. Mm. And now I have people that help me write. I have people that help me research. I have people that help me in the travels. And um, I also have people, I have 5,000 facilitators out there helping me with teach now. So I'm, I'm constantly going to the next level of delegation so I can do what I love doing most inspiring. Yeah. And I found that that's a very powerful positioning. I've earned way more money because I've extracted surplus labor value out of other people and given job opportunities and careers and helped the economy by doing so. I win. Everybody wins by doing this. I give people permission to do what they love, the things I want to delegate. Beautiful. And to finish, um, I would love for you to just issue a little challenge here to the audience, something that we can all implement over the next few days take note, refine, work on, something that'll help us start to really feel like we are moving towards um, a higher value? Well, the first thing you want to do is to take a look at what your life demonstrates that nobody ever has to remind you to do, that you love doing, that you're inspired to do, that you, you just show consistent discipline to do. And be honest with yourself. I have people who say, well, I don't know. I can't think of anything because they keep comparing themselves to other people and, and they don't see what where the discipline that other people have inside themselves. So they think they don't have discipline, but they all, every one of the people, I mean, I've dealt with 90,000 people in the breakthrough experience. I've yet to find somebody that can't find what they really are disciplined at. You just got to look and be honest. And if you start there and do your value determination and determine what's really valuable to you, you'll see that they're congruent. They're one and the same thing. And identifying that highest value is one of the most powerful things you'll ever do. The ancient Greeks called that highest value the telos. 
And the telos was a source of teleology, which is the most meaningful, most purposeful, most inspiring, and most fulfilling thing a person can do. Once we identify that, then we want to structure our life and prioritize our life and ask, what are the highest priority actions I can do to fulfill that today? And slowly but surely, liberate yourself from the lower priority ones and watch your energy go up. Watch your creativity go up. Watch your income go up. Watch your opportunities go up. Watch your confidence go up. It all changes the moment you begin that. So ask yourself, what are the highest priority actions I can do today to help me fulfill my mission on planet Earth? And then give yourself permission to gradually delegate all else away and go and do what it is you're truly gifted to do. That's your Ricardo's competitive advantage that nobody can compete you with. You know, the more we subordinate to other people, the more we're in competition. The more we're true and authentic, there's nobody in competition. That is one heck of a fabulous challenge. We will be taking our Low Tox Club chat group through that challenge. Um, details on that on the show notes, because I think there are going to be some really powerful conversations that come when we, we start discussing this further and, and helping each other be, be brave and, and work, towards, um, work towards this. I think it's just such a gift that we've had this hour to chat together for you to share the amazing uh, truths that you have learned over the years and taught others and uh and i just love the research write travel teach and your relentless uh commitment to those things that light you up the most john it is um it's very special to have spent this time chatting to you thank you no thank you i appreciate it you know my mission is to do what we just did so you gave me an opportunity to be me so thank you <laughs> you're very welcome anytime i appreciate it Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.